Welcome back to another edition of Why Football Happens, talking anything and everything that is about the beautiful global game. And we got very global this week on the podcast, talking about the build-up to Euro 2020 stroke 2021, I suppose you could call it that, with myself, Ollie Wilson, Paul McDonald, Ben Jacobs and Stephen Drennan, dissecting everything that you need to keep an eye out on in this summer's tournament. So sit back and enjoy the podcast. just feels like more football in uh, a pandemic world where we kind of just became saturated with football and the way the Premier League was staggered every weekend. It was like a monotonous drone of top flight football from around Europe, just bleeding into the Champions League in midweek and then back out into the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday of the domestic campaigns and so many midweek games as well. It just doesn't feel like the hype is there compared to other tournaments coming up this summer, in part because of that and perhaps as well because of the reshuffle of the calendar with the tournament anyway, Paul. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think certainly at the, at the group stage, um, I'm not expecting fireworks at this tournament. I'm expecting guys resting their legs a little, um, particularly given we've got a group stage structure, which means only eight teams go out. It puts less of an emphasis on the, on the big guns to fire from the very beginning. They'll get through anyway in most cases. So I'm expecting a, quite a low-key group stage where teams feel each other out and... Um, the, uh, the bigger guns just take their time to get through whilst using the minimum amount of resources possible. Because you've still got guys preparing and getting ready from the Champions League final, do you know what I mean? These, are, these guys are catching up with their international squads, likes of uh, Jorginho at Italy. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll basically get to the squad like within days of the first game of the tournament. It's just, just a total nonsense what we're asking players to do. Um, and the disparate nature of the, of the tournament, because it's been based in all these cities, just means that there isn't there isn't a hub that's really getting the atmosphere going for everybody that you usually get when, when like a Brazil or even a Russia to a certain extent host an event. You can get on board with it with the, with the locals getting excited about it. You don't have that this time. So it just feels like a, a an extremely overextended international break at the moment. And I don't think until we get to the business end of the tournament will it really feel otherwise. Should that have been something with the, the multiple venues that was changed as soon as this whole pandemic problem became a real problem for Euro 2020 and they had to rechange the date and reshuffle because, look, we've seen what's happened with Comibol this week with them taking uh, the Copa America away from Argentina and Colombia. They're unable to host it. Yesterday, uh, it was decided that Brazil last minute is going to try and host the tournament. America was given as a potential decision as well and the USA was going to be one. But for UEFA to still stand by this, we're going to spread the game idea. But it just seems like it's, it's slightly the wrong decision and perhaps... You know, 12 months ago, you could have prepared a central hub, uh, a country perhaps that looked like it was on its way out. I know England was actually quite uh, tempted by this sort of idea of perhaps stepping in and just hosting the whole thing. But that would have made more sense as well in a travel restricted Europe that we have at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I would imagine that two options were presented. One was a year ago, whether to redefine to a more traditional European championship. And the other was we've got a year due to the delay. And at that point, when they committed to keeping the formats to try and amplify the anniversary and be as Eurocentric as they could, 
the feeling from the authorities probably was that they had enough time and that there would be enough vaccinations and there'd be enough COVID protocol. And, you know, fundamentally, we've had a Champions League final that you could argue under COVID protocol should have just gone back to England and it still went to Porto. We've had other international fixtures that have gone without hitch. So I think that the authorities behind the tournament will be relatively confident that this can still take place and we won't be in a communable style situation. Yet by the same token, the danger of the geography and so many cities, and then when you add fans who can obviously be present both in the stadiums in different capacities, but also in and around. So we all know that if your country's doing well and it's not on your doorstep, you're still going to go and make a holiday of that. You're still going to gather, you're still going to drink. And I think the one warning side is going to be what if we get an outbreak at that point, the geography of the European Championships in this format will come back to bite. So right now, when you look at it on paper, it should be exciting. It should be Eurocentric. It should give everyone the opportunity to sort of follow their own team to some extent in and around their own countries and ultimately all boil down to that road to Wembley, which from an England point of view is great just talking to you as a fan. But my worry is if we get five games into the tournament, and there is a COVID outbreak, at that point, the whole thing could just be delayed or fall completely to pieces. Yeah, I mean, just five minutes ago before we come on, I was I was reading about what's going on in Vietnam. They've got an outbreak, which looks like it's a, a mutation of the Indian version, which spreads a lot more rapidly than even the Indian version. So it's, it's a case of anything right now that you plan can just collapse in a, a minute's notice if you find out that there's an outbreak in, in one of the cities. And then because everyone's traveling around, everything's delayed by about 10 days. So the outbreak could have happened, could be breaking now, but it was 10 days ago and everyone's been traveling around for those 10 days and all the teams have been playing against each other, fans mingling. Like, I don't know, it it just seems like um, sticking with this idea of having it in lots of different countries just seems to be adding an unnecessary danger of it being seriously interrupted or becoming a serious outbreak spreading across several different countries. And just an element, I think, of of naivety in the idea that we can just push through and get through the void of this and and this is the tournament we wanted, this is the tournament we're going to have. It, It was a wonderful idea, you know, spread the global game, although some would argue it's kind of been spread enough as it is and it's actually getting a bit spread far too thin uh, throughout a calendar year. Um, And then just going back to then you have, as Paul mentioned, players been overworked and overrun for the last 12 months as well. You then add potential travel, of course, bouncing around if once teams get into the knockout stages, it's likely that the teams that are in the knockout stages are going to have a, a majority of players that are involved in obviously the major tournaments in European football right the way through to the latter parts of those competitions as well for their club teams without very much respite, likely being involved in the the upper echelons of the domestic leagues in the top five in European football and fighting for Champions League spots, as we saw. You know, Serie A went down to the wire on the Sunday and there were players who played that Sunday then playing for Italy against San Marino, albeit at walking pace on a Friday night. And maybe Italy have been smart in having that friendly early and then getting prepared for the tournament rather than having it a little later on before the tournament. But it just it just seems it's asking for trouble for players, for supporters, and then it's the inability to get up and G'd up for this competition, which is really sh- really sad to say because the Euros is arguably a, a higher caliber competition in terms of the quality running through it when it's not the expanded tournament than a World Cup. 
We started on quite a negative note, and I think that's valid <laughs> because ultimately these are all very fair points. And you know, if you take the patriotism aside, and if you look at the longer-term knock-on effects, and if you factor in COVID, there definitely are risks both to the tournament itself, but also that bleed into next season as well in terms of slow starts, in terms of injuries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But all of that said. I think that if you were going to host the Euros at a year's delay and if you were going to squeeze all of the fixtures and all of the competitions into the season that's just finished, there was no real other option. And I guess the one saving grace, ironically, is that winter Qatar World Cup in 2022, which gives a little bit of breathing space between this year and next year, because the worst possible thing would be to have that knock-on effect, a load of fixtures, and then a 2022 Summer World Cup. So ironically, that Winter World Cup actually helps breathe things out a little bit. But I think it's unavoidable. And I think that the only solution would have been to go to partners and sponsors and say, the season that's just passed, did we really need, for example, a League Cup? Or was there an opt-out for some of the big teams but, you know, does that actually make a difference? Because a lot of the managers would just rest those players that are now playing in the Euros and those kind of tournaments anyway. So I'm not really sure what could have been done other than potentially a tactic that didn't stagger the football. So you started by talking about football being just consistent. And I think my sense is the only way of protecting the players would have been to have fixed fixtures at set times with overlap which fans wouldn't have loved because they wouldn't have been able to see every single game but I think constantly having games at different times on different days has taken some of that rest time out of the equation as well yeah, yeah. agreed but anyway Scotland Scotland are at the tournament so that's all that matters really I guess so let's go on with it <laughs> <laughs> so that would be your pick then as a, a dark horse to go deep in the competition is it Paul well, well, we may as well crack on with it with the, um, the thoughts in the tournament. I, I did a my twenty fourth team analysis um, ranked from first to twenty fourth, and um, I think I had us at twenty first on the list. I think we might not be the worst, but I think um, we're among them. Now, listen, I mean the, the expanded tournament is designed for for countries like us and Finland and Macedonia and Welsh who might not compete. Um, all that much in the tournament, it does give the tournament a fresh feel about it and um, allow a set of fans that might not necessarily be able to ever celebrate something like this, get back in the fold. Particularly, I mean, we've not been there since 1996 in terms of the Euros and, and Finland and Macedonia have never been there at all. So it's, it's an incredible time for them. I just feel sorry for them that those fans don't have a, a venue to go to, a tournament to get to. Um, mm. So they could they could uh, convene in one place and really show, show people... Um, what, what, what it means to them to be there. I think that's one thing that a tournament, this, this structure does lack. But but like I say, um, I think the 24 team structure of the tournament is inefficient in terms of the amount of games it takes to get um, to get us down to 16. But I do think that it's, it has to be championed for the fact that it does get these small nations into the tournament and allows a bit of a more diverse competition. I mean, you can... I will continue to go down the miserable old man stuck in the mud kind of way of that was always the thing for me with the Euros was the the calibre of opposition was always such a high quality that you didn't have potential dead rubbers. And I will always look at a group stage that has third place teams going through and just wonder if that really is necessary. Um, 
And when you think of the outcry that's been about other expansion of tournaments and, and such, the, the Euros is kind of no exception this year. Uh, and will those, will any of those teams, I mean, joking about Scotland, but, you know, Macedonia, Finland, are, are any of those sides really going to perhaps, you know, turn up any trees and, and make a major impact at this tournament? I'd love to say yes. I think Cinderella stories are great to follow through a competition. But as dark horses to go deep, they, they probably aren't making too many people's lists, I wouldn't have thought at this point. Yeah, I think uh, the, the further we go on in, in football and the more you expand out the amount of games, I think you increasingly just make it so that the better teams are always have the best chance. So if you have, for example, if there was only uh, two teams going through, then um, that Portugal, France, Germany group looks very interesting. But now it's like, okay, so Hungary go out and then one of them will be the best third place team. So what's the point? And, and it just immediately becomes uh, a boring group um, because you kind of know who will go through. Um, it'll be all three of them. It's just what, what the order is. Um, but in terms of dark horses, the one team I thought was interesting would be uh, Turkey. Um, that They kind of have a, um, a few good players and they're, they're kind of underdogs. And I don't think anybody expects them to do well. But um, looking at the way the draw could fall, they could end up um, lining up against uh, some of the bigger teams at, at bad moments, like um, the Netherlands, for example, with De Boer. Um, I, I'm not sure what they'll be like, but the Boers' record in, in football isn't that great, uh, except, except from his Ajax days, and and that, that wasn't really a big challenge. So um, I could see maybe Turkey scraping through against a, maybe like a weakened Netherlands side without Van Dijk. And then they're in the, the quarterfinals, and then they're in the semifinals, and it's interesting. But realistically, I, I think it'll just be the loaded with, the semifinals will be loaded with the stronger teams. Completely agree with you, Stephen, on Turkey. I think they will make some waves. Um, you know, Soyuncu and Demiral are going to be integral in their defence. And then, you know, you've obviously got Kalinoglu as well and Yilmaz. So they've got like a kind of spine there. I suppose that you could also add Yokoslu as well. And the other team, you know, maybe you can't even call them dark horses because I think they're one of the top probably eight teams there is Denmark who've got a very solid squad who are all largely playing across the best teams now in Europe. And they're the form team, I think coming in because they scored, I think 14 goals in three games in world cup qualifying. They came out of the nation's group with 10 points off the top of my head. And they certainly took four points against England, which shows you their pedigree. They got Schmeichel, Christensen, Holberg, um, Ericsson, Dolberg. So again, much like Turkey, they've got a spine as well. So I think one of Turkey or Denmark will at least make the quarterfinals, if not the semis. I, I just realised that I didn't actually see a dark horse when I was, when I was doing mine, but <laughs> um, it should be of a disaster to everybody for me to make it a full house and say Turkey, because that means we have totally jinxed them to do badly at this tournament. Because <laughs> they were my pick as well. I think they are... Massively going under the radar. Excellent results against the Dutch and the Germans in the last uh, eight or nine months. They have a good defensive base. They have got good attacking talents. And also, in, in Burak Yilmaz, they could potentially have the story of the tournament, given the season that he's just had at, at Lille. So, like, I think they've got all the attributes. I think the one thing that does stand against them and, and maybe makes me lean a little more towards uh, Denmark, as, as Ben said, is there are games going to be hosted in Copenhagen, which I think will be a big big difference at this tournament, even if there's only limited fans that are going to be available to, to enter the games, I do think that home advantage 
not just because you can play in your own stadium, but all the COVID protocols and all the travelling at the end of a gruelling season, more of that you can cut out, the better. And I think Denmark have got a couple of games in Copenhagen to play, whereas Turkey are doing a bit of travelling, I think, to, to Baku for a few games and also to Rome. So that might count against them when it gets to the later two stages of the tournament. But I do think of the outsiders, and I do think you have the key eight teams in Europe, and then you've got a tier below that that, that could interrupt them, but really aren't of that level. I do think of that second tier, Turkey and Denmark are certainly the ones that could, could potentially cause the most trouble for the big teams. Mm-hmm. What about as well, though, Russia in that group with Denmark? Because they have, they have games at home as well, and we saw at the last World Cup, and I know hosting a World Cup is... You know, it's a it's a lot easier to go further in a World Cup that's on your own on your own patch of grass. But that was a Russia side that was meant to be one of the worst teams at that tournament and actually showed up and got themselves to the quarterfinals in the end. And as you say, two games in, at home in the group stage, three go through. There's a there's a potential for Russia to at least put their name in the knockout stages and and it's whether they've then built on that World Cup, I suppose. I've got them on my projections to to get out of the group for that exact reason. I think they play I think they play Finland at home in St. Petersburg is one of the games and three points, quite frankly, could be enough to get you out of some of these groups. I mean, it's the best, the best four of six. So picking up a home win against Finland could be enough for them to get out of the group. Um, But there's also other things. I mean, I I don't think um, Belgium are the force that they are without De Bruyne. So there's other things that fall in in their favour in that section as well. So I do think they'll get out of the group. That being said, do I think they're they're a good team? Absolutely not. Not by any stretch (laughs) of the imagination is that a good Russia team. And the fact they're relying on, on Zuba still three three years later for their goals tells you a lot about how Russian football youth development has really stagnated over the last decade. There's there's also the whole doping scandal with the, the Russian team as well. The... <laughs> I didn't want us to get sued, man, so I didn't mention that. But... <laughs> the, the, the distance was ran from some of the players in the last World Cup were like four kilometres more than the average of most other teams. And yeah, so it's, I don't know... I, the, uh, the Russia side, I think even if they were to get out of their, the group and get into the knockouts, they end up in a very stacked zone where it's like, I think they're most likely end up facing Spain. And then if they get past Spain, then they end up facing either England, Croatia, and whoever ends up winning that Portugal, France, Germany group. So it looks like a nightmare to try and get through from, from Russia's side unless they end up winning the group. But I just can't imagine Russia are going to win that group. So, yeah. Yeah, that would seem. Yeah, I think Russia. It's all about their transition because that's where they're the strongest. We know that it's a kind of aging side, and tactically, I think they'll be relatively predictable as well. But they have had a good habit of kind of ball winning centrally and then breaking in fast transitions, and then the width comes into play, and they've scored a lot of goals against bigger teams, higher-ranked teams, using that kind of counter-attacking style. So I sort of expect them to set up in a kind of 4-2-3-1 with Zuba leading the line, and one would imagine Golovin centrally behind him. And kind of a lot of talk will be about the reliance on them and maybe Miranchuk and uh, Kuzeyev as well and that's their sort of traditional front line if everyone's fit um, but I more look at the back and I sort of look at the role that Shunan will play between the sticks and Mario Fernandez as well on the right hand side of a kind of back four and I think the two centre-backs will get exposed and I think that probably Zobnin and uh, Ozdoyev or whoever they pick in that central midfield will have to like drop very very deep um, and effectively make a kind of back six uh, but 
when they're out of possession, they've got good ball winners in midfield, both the fullbacks and the central midfielders. So I think there's a lot of pressure on like a Mario Fernandez and a Zobnim, even though they don't get as much of the kind of media attention uh, to win the ball um, and then to break with pace um, and use that width and use that overlap. And if they can do that, they can certainly beat Finland and they can maybe take something off Denmark. Uh, but on paper, um, I, I don't see them going very far. When is the next episode of the Everything Russia Football Podcast coming out, Ben? It's it's an interesting listen, I have to say. That is a mighty good lowdown on the Russian international team. <laughs> what about then? I mean, obviously, dark horses are fine. There are some sides that are going to be blown way out of proportion going into this tournament, particularly sides that put their name in the hat in the knockout stages and end up coming up an absolute cropper. Who are going to be the overrated, perhaps, giants that uh, that get overblown going into this tournament? And Paul, if you could refrain from saying England straight away, it's too predictable an answer, too easy to do. Listen, I wish I could say it. I'm very worried about England. But anyway, as, as overrated teams go, I don't think Belgium are overrated, but I do think that without De Bruyne, they lose a massive element of that team. And given Eden Hazard's um, form or lack thereof over the last 18 months, I think De Bruyne might be able to make it back for the knockout stages. I think the injury means that he could return then, but we're still talking three weeks away. We don't know what's going to happen there. Um, and coupled with the fact that if they win that group and other things fall in their, uh, fall in their favour that I think that they will in terms of the third-place teams, they could very much conceivably play either Portugal, Germany or France. And I think even with Germany's um, weaknesses over the past year, I do think that as a swan song tournament for Yogi Lowe and the fact that Hummels and Müller might be back in the fold, I do think they've got, they, they, they could have more to offer than Belgium. I, I think that Lukaku is an exceptional forward, remains kind of underrated in England, I think, by a lot of people, and but also is a guy who needs very good service. And if you take a, an a inefficient Hazard and you take De Bruyne out of the equation altogether, I don't know... I don't know who else in that in that Belgian midfield has really got the capability to give him the, the type of service that he deserves to score goals. So it's an aging Belgian team as well. It feels as if this is the end of that cycle for this Belgian team. And I, I think that it may just be a cycle too far. I think that 2018 was probably their moment. And I think that them being ranked on, lev- on level with the England and the betting at the moment is a bit is a bit over-exaggerating what I think they could potentially do. Yeah, I mean, I, I had Belgium down in, in, in my notes as well. I think they're still rated as a, the number one team in the world by FIFA, um, which is immediately just makes me think, nah, they're not. Um, England, again, is the, the obvious other one, only because of the media, really, in the UK. Like, whenever you get out of England, I, I mean, I moved to Brazil and, um, years ago, and all the tournaments that come up with England in them, the, the media in Brazil don't really get too excited about them. It's like, might be like an underdog who might dig into someone in the, the knockout rounds, but they're never really touted as someone who would have a chance of, of winning the tournament. But in contrast, when you're in England, it's just fever pitch. It's like they're, they're going to they're gonna go far. And as soon as any player makes a mistake that, that, that puts them in trouble, they get vilified like, a, like it's a cardinal sin. And I don't know it. it it's one of the big differences, I guess, is the media of a country uh, that's in the tournament. When you're actually in that country compared to when you're outside, it's very, very different. But yeah, um, the only reason I'm, in, I'm worried about England is simply because a lot of key players like Maguire and Rashford, um, uh, particularly for United, 
have played a lot of football and from reading what Rashford said, they've been playing a lot of football while injured. And I think in this tournament, because the games are going to be very close together, you're not going to get a lot of rest time. And if your players are already running on near empty coming into the tournament, you might have a problem. And I think that might in particular be true for Premier League teams. So England's probably the team that has the most Premier League players. And that's why I think England might have a, a bit of a problem in the tournament. And you also Good look to at hear the criticism against England because every time people slag us off, then expectations are lower and we can stop this nonsense about it's coming home, it's coming home. <laughs> I'm going to be controversial here. And actually, my two flops, if you like, are both in the same group. And that's Switzerland, which is not that controversial because they blow hot and cold. So I'm not going to focus on them because I think we can only pick one. Otherwise, we're hedging our bets. So I'm going to say something absolutely outrageous and tell you that I think the team that underperforms is going to be Italy, which when you look at their form and look at the turnaround under Roberto Mancini, sounds like a farcical prediction to make. But I do think that the Euros will sort of tell us whether Italy are genuinely back for real. And we all know the torrid run of form they were on before Mancini came in. And the reason I say Italy is because during this winning streak that's been largely heralded, they actually only faced three teams who are now in FIFA's top 20 rankings. And they came through quite an easy group with Finland, Greece, Armenia, Liechtenstein and Bosnia, I believe. And what Mancini's done well is he's kind of defined these core principles of what a 4-3-3 should be like. So Italy kind of want to play out from the back. Suddenly they want to dictate the pace. And you've obviously got like Verratti and Jorginho that can do that really well in the centre of midfield. And then this is a big tournament for Barella and Immobile in particular. But the question is just whether amongst this youth, amongst this potential, amongst this form, they've actually got the kind of experience and team ethic to do it on the big occasion. And I'm honestly just not sure because yes, you've got Bonucci and Cialini who are experienced at the back, but I think they'll be targeted and I think they'll be exposed by some of the world's top players. Other than that, I really like the the look of the sort of younger players, the Donnarumma's, uh, Jorginho I've already mentioned, Barella, Immobile, uh, probably Verratti and so on, um, playing in this kind of 4-3-3 with um, one would assume like the Florenzis and the Emersons um, in the fullback positions and so on. Uh, so there's strength and depth and there's a lot of options. But Mancini for me is a manager that's great when things go well and very, very high risk when things go badly. So I think for Italy, they're either going to go on and win the whole thing or it's going to blow up in the group stage. And it wouldn't at all surprise me if they underperform early in the tournament. They use squad rotation early in the tournament. They get out their group in all probability. But then again, much like in their qualification for this tournament, they've not been that tested and then they come up against somebody outside of the Stadio Olimpico because let, let's not forget they're starting on kind of home soil and when they're actually tested they don't perform and they're out the tournament in the last 16 or the quarterfinals I, I think that one of the biggest price things in the tournament is, is Turkey in that opening match I think if, that, if Italy were playing anywhere else other than in Rome Turkey would be uh, my bet of the tournament for that opening game uh, they're still priced up at the moment at like 11-2, 6-1 just to win that match um, and I think based on what, exactly what Ben said Italy haven't played anybody even in the Nations League they played a, a weak Poland team that relies so much on Lewandowski I think they could get a shock and I think 
as opening games go, you usually get a shock in that one. And I think Turkey being priced at that at that price for that game and a one-off match is a bit disrespectful to Turkey, I think. Uh, no one mentioned France, but um, it, it, uh, there's been some question marks asked to France because they lost to Finland and, and they've sort of, out of their last four home games, I think they've won just one out of the four. Um, and, and it makes me wonder whether players like uh, Griezmann, obviously he's had a bit of a downturn since leaving Atletico and Mbappe hasn't scored for France in 2021. And um, like obviously they're they're loaded with good players and their under-21 team could probably win this tournament if they're so good. But um, no one sort of mentioned the fact that they're just maybe blowing a little bit hot and cold. And in a tournament like this, you have one bad game and you're out. And, and that's, that's why knockout tournaments are so much fun. I guess. And um, I think France could be someone that might end up having one of those shock defeats. They're my tip to win the tournament, but they're also someone I think they're they're capable of just rocking up somewhere and having a bad a bad day. I think France, if we're going into the favourites and who we think will win it, France are on, on my list too. Um, top of my list, just because I couldn't bring myself to put England at the top of the list. But <laughs> they, they have got players that, that that will take the step up when it's the big occasion. And um, in Canty, they've got not only the best midfielder in the world, but in my opinion, the best midfielder in the last 20 years. And I'm not even exaggerating there. I think the difference that Canty makes to a team when he's in it and when he's not in it is, is so important. But not only that, what he does when Pogba plays alongside him, he makes him, he transforms him into a better footballer. And uh, a high-level Pogba is a, a tool that we've probably not even really seen since World Cup 2018. Then you throw Benzema in the mix, which might be a problem because he, I don't think he's he's particularly liked by the entire French dressing room, but also he's in spectacular scoring form. And if you could replace one part of that France team from, from 2018, you would say that if you had a, a goal scorer in that team, they could have won that tournament even more easily than they did. So if uh, Deschamps can get the balance of Mbappe playing off one side and Griezmann playing off the other with Benzema through the middle, there's nobody touches that starting eleven in the tournament, but Stephen's 100% right. They are, as as they showed from 2002, from the 2000 team, they, they have the potential to turn up and completely explode. But I just don't think it will be this one. I think this this one's made for them. Doesn't that yeah. just show how good France are, though? That you're saying they could be the overrated side, or they they could easily be a favourite. That you know, the success and failure of France kind of boils down to a. In, it sounds like from you guys a semi-final or final performance, or nothing is good enough for them. Well, just on that note, um, it, we have a, a general way of talking in football about people and teams being overrated and underrated, and it often just is defined by a single moment and a single match. Um, and, and that's kind of the problem. It's very outcome-based analysis. So I would never say France are overrated. I still think they're the best team in the tournament. And like I said, I think they're under-21 team, if you put it in this tournament. They'd be like fourth or fifth best team in the tournament. That They have an insane depth of quality at the moment in France. But they also just have the capacity to just have a really bad day. And they've shown it recently. Um, and so, again, you just turn up for one bad game. And, and that's it. You're out of a tournament. It doesn't mean you're overrated. It's just everyone has a bad day. I mean, France have a bad day. Recently, it, it, it's really bad. I think Deschamps doesn't have uh, or hasn't shown that he can turn around a performance midway through when France are having a really bad game. Um, it, you can sort of tell in the first half that the result, how the result will pan out. If they're having a bad half, they're going to have a bad game. And that, that would probably be my problem with France. I want, I want to hear Ben make the case for England. Come on, Ben. 
I mean, I'm not saying that there's a case for England. I think that much like we've said with Italy, the one saving grace for England is get to the final stages and the tournament concludes at Wembley Stadium. And I think that buzz, much like we saw, of course, around Euro 96, and we didn't go on and win that either, but that buzz might just play into England's hands. I think that the squad selection um, is as we expected to a large extent. One thing I would say with England is that the first name I would have gone to if I was Gareth Southgate for experience and uh, to some extent form is Jamie Vardy. I'm biased because I'm a Leicester fan and in fairness, his form towards the end of the season was dreadful and he was on a goal drought. So that to some extent takes the, the Vardy factor out of the equation. But I think if you'd have asked me a year ago, then Vardy would have definitely been someone I'd have gone to if I was Gareth Southgate to try and get him to come out of international retirement. But I don't think England will do that well. I think that they'll be typical England at the tournament. They'll show a lot of promise. They'll show a lot of potential. They'll have a a lot of media hype, but they won't necessarily have the fluidity And part of that comes because these are good English players playing alongside a load of foreign players and they're not used to playing together with each other as sort of all English team. And when you look at like the core German players historically, the core Italian players historically, uh, they play together and naturally Spain as well, even though there's no Real Madrid players in the Spain squad, it's the same. They play in their domestic leagues, but the English players, not all of them play week in, week out. Not all of them have played that much together. Um, So there's sort of pros and cons with England in many ways. Uh, There's a lot of sort of depth and versatility, especially because Trent Alexander-Arnold is also included uh, and is one of four right backs who can obviously all interchange, all switch sides, all overlap, uh, some of which can even sort of play in different formations where they're effectively more like uh, midfielders. Um, So I think that that will help England at the back. Uh, but is that sort of attacking mouse at the back going to have to be reined in and a bit more disciplined? And are these players capable of uh, sitting a lot deeper and keeping a clean sheet? And I think if England are going to succeed at these Euros, they're going to have to keep clean sheets. And um, a lot will be made of the kind of attacking prowess um, and the forward factor, the Canes, the Rashfords, the Sterlings, the Calvert-Lewins. It's a shame, by the way, that Lingard isn't in there, uh, the Fodens, the Grealishes and so on. Um but I'm more looking at how are England going to fare at the back. And I think that there's a sort of sparsity of like old school, traditional holding midfielders like Kante style players, uh, because who have you got in midfield? You know, you've got Mount, you've got Henderson, uh, Phillips, uh, Rice and Bellingham. And I don't really see too much discipline there. I don't see too many players that, again, can protect a game and can keep a clean sheet. And then you've got a heck of a lot of defenders, a heck of a lot of fullbacks, all of whom for much of the season have made their name uh, because they've been able to bomb forwards, because they've been able to switch sides, because they've been able to take set pieces, because they've been able to be versatile. Uh, but I don't think a lot of that's going to help England because you've sort of got most of the... Uh, tactics streamed through Kane and maybe Sterling or Rashford. And um, I just don't think the likes of Alexander-Arnold or um, Ben Chilwell necessarily complement that tactic. 
So I think England will be a bit disjointed. I think they'll be torn over what the best formation is for the squad that's been picked. And I don't think they'll keep that many clean sheets. So then we're back to where we started, much like Spurs domestically, of can England score two goals a game? Can Harry Kane do the business? Um, and I think Harry Kane will come into this tournament very tired. I think Rashford and Sterling will come into this uh, tournament very uh, tired. So my case for England is basically, will they keep enough clean sheets to win the tournament? And sadly, I think the answer will be no. The, th- the three things that, that are um, allowing me to convince myself that England won't win it are, number one, Gareth Southgate, not good enough at this level, not good enough at any level to be coaching this group of players and it will count against England. Number two is, it's a hard group, I think. Um, Scotland aren't a good side, but you're not talking about a normal game here. You're talking about a Scotland-England match at a major tournament, one that we've not been at in 23 years. That's a that's a completely different landscape to that fixture. Croatia might be old, but the World Cup finalists three years ago, and in this Czech team are, are, are built on the foundations of that excellent Slavia team that got to the quarters of the Europa League. So they're no mugs either. So I think it's a tough group. And three, in no other country in the tournament or in the world would there be a debate about whether Jaden Sancho starts. Yeah. But for this team, apparently there is, which I find utterly staggering. So that's the three things that I think could count against them and why they won't win it. Yeah. The other thing I would say as well, which is a very interesting thing, is when, when you... When you look at the England players, um, they're key players, I guess, from an attacking point of view. All play for teams that are very good with positional play. And Gar Southgate has no idea how to coach positional play. So I don't know whether these players are going to go out and just uh, kind of wing it on, on the basis of what they do in club football. And that's how they're going to approach breaking down a team that's sort of dug in in a low block. Or whether they're just um, going to follow Southgate's plan and I don't know what that is so that's kind of my problem with it is they've got a a manager who's in his career won like 30% of his games his approach seems to be to do not lose rather than to go out and win and attack teams so I'm I'm just not sure what how England are going to set up and and what it'll look like in the actual tournament because it's it's one thing when you're coming up against these weaker teams and qualifications but when it comes to like big games and, and big tournaments like we saw it whenever England played Croatia in the World Cup and he, he just didn't really seem to react to the game and make and know how to change it and make it go in his direction, I guess. So this is now turning into the uh, slamming Gareth Southgate, England have got no hope podcast for 20 minutes. Ben, you've still not given us a team that you actually think is going to win this tournament. You've, you've torn apart Italy. We've, we've discussed France in detail about how they could win it, but there's a likelihood they won't. And we've uh, heard a lot about why England definitely won't win it. So who do you think will win it, Ben? It's a good question. Maybe nobody is deserving of actually winning the tournament. I think that the one team that has already been discussed and probably the reason why I didn't give a winner is France. Like I'm very boring. I'm very predictable. Like um, I'm the one that thinks Italy will be the flop and I'm the one that thinks that Denmark or Turkey will be the dark horse. But I also just think that when you look, as Stephen alluded to, at the French team and you look at who they could have called up from that under-21 team, they simply have the depth. And France have got a sort of funny way at major tournaments of late of kind of being a bit lackadaisical and being a bit lazy and playing their way into tournaments But then when they actually get to the business end, and I do take Stephen's point that in one game, that sort of laziness could 
come back to bite them and it could end up dumping them surprisingly out of the tournament. But I just think for whatever reason, I don't know if it's intentional in the way they conserve their energy or whether it's just the manner of that kind of swagger that this current team play with, but they seem to play their way into a tournament slowly. But when the match actually matters, at least in recent years, they find that form and they find that talent. And obviously a lot will be made of the kind of world-class players, but as Paul alluded to, you've got the Ballon d'Or contender in N'Golo Kante, who's going to be absolutely crucial to them because what's going to stop France from winning this tournament? It's not depth. It's not talent. It's not goals. It's not defending. It's not a top-class goalkeeper. It's only going to be that they don't get motoring, that they don't have that energy, that they don't take someone as seriously as they should. And I think in a player like Kante, they've got a constant reminder of the work ethic. They've got that constant ability to win back the ball. And he'll do so many unsung things surrounded by stars. I mean, I know he does that at Chelsea too, but I think at Chelsea, uh, the role, particularly under Thomas Tuchel, uh, is more heralded. You know, you look at the Champions League final and uh, Rudiger playing in the heart of defence means that Kante can basically go back to the role that he did at Leicester, which is as a straight midfielder who can get box to box, who can nip in, who can win balls, who can find that quick pass, who can find that positive pass. And constantly he'd either set off Jamie Vardy when Vardy was in his prime, or he'd give it to Drinkwater and Drinkwater would set off Jamie Vardy and then Mares would do the rest from the sides. And I think that France team reminds me, I know it's farcical to say because they've got far more star power, but they remind me of Leicester at their best. And I say this as a Leicester fan, of course, when we won the Premier League. And in that moment when Leicester, for example, hammered Liverpool at the King Power Stadium and Vardy scored from pretty much the halfway line, is that kind of day. France seemed to be just capable of that by default, but are they going to slip up? And I think with a player like Kante, even though he won't be the first name that everyone talks about, he's going to be the one reminding them on the training ground and reminding them on the football field to maintain that humility, to maintain that organisation, to maintain that hunger, to win the second balls. And he's going to set them off on the counter-attack as well. And I just think he doesn't have a bad game and he hasn't had a bad game all season. And when you've got that levelling presence to kind of anchor your midfield, plus all the rest of the talent that Stephen already alluded to, I just cannot see anyone else other than France winning it. Yeah, he's just like the right, anti a, a different Kante. name then than France. Um, I I like a lot of the players in Portugal, and and they're the reigning champions. And they have in um, Diogo Jada uh, a new forward emerging who, for Liverpool this season, knows how to score goals. He's really really quick when he gets the ball in, in his feet at getting a shot off and and catching the keeper off early. And they also have Zhao Felix, who hasn't really exploded yet, but you've seen lots of moments where you think, yeah, he, he could be one of the next big things in the world. Um, and also they have Renato Sanchez, who was the player of the tournament uh, for, for Portugal not so long ago. And then he had a, a bad spell after he joined Bayern, but he's re-emerged this season, found his form again at Lille. And so they kind of have lots of interesting players where you think they, they could just take charge of a tournament and just run through teams. They have lots of quality players. Um, we haven't even mentioned Ronaldo. So I, I don't know. It, it, it feels like um, if there's anyone I think that could probably beat France, it would probably be Portugal again. Um, the other team I would mention that we, no one, none of us mentioned as well is Spain. Uh, and, and Spain have um, also a, a very strong team. And their group isn't that hard. And they could easily land up on a, a knockout 
draw that doesn't have too many big teams in their way. And they could maybe get a very easy course through to the semi-finals. So, yeah, th- th- those would be two other teams I haven't seen anyone mention. I just, I'd throw Germany back in the ring. I, I think that Germany are made for international tournaments as a team. They very rarely have a bad one. In fact, even even the bad teams, if you look at Rudy Voller's team in 2002, even then they got to the final. Um, and in 2008, they didn't have a great side either. It was the start of this new generation, but they hadn't really came through yet. And they got to the final there as well. So I think with the reintroduction of, of Hummels and, and Muller to bring that experience back into the side, plus Havertz ending the season really well. And for all of Werner's faults in front of goal, that guy's a, a, a forward who's waiting to turn into a prolific goal scorer. It will happen for him eventually. You just don't get any as many positions as he does so regularly without it turning for you. So yeah. I, I think that Germany are going in underrated largely because of that hammering they took against Spain a year ago. But their team's different from then now. And um, whilst I don't think they can win it, I think that they should be underestimated at their peril, particularly given, again, to talk about home advantage. They've got a couple of games in Munich um, in the group stages as well, which which could play a part. So whilst I don't think Germany can win it, I do think they'll be a tough opposition for anyone. Can I just briefly also say the words North Macedonia because we haven't spoken about the lowest ranked team and I know they're not going to win it. So it's a strange segue and I know they're not technically a dark horse, but you know something, their group, other than Holland, who will cruise to that group, Austria and Ukraine, you never know. And the thing about North Macedonia is that, you know, if we talk about who's going to win the tournament, for them, winning the tournament will be like getting a point or scoring a key goal. And actually, they won their sort of League D, I think it was called, which was like the lowest division to secure promotion to League C and then reach the playoffs. And that was in the Nations League. And then they beat Kosovo and they beat Georgia as well. This is historically in... um November, I think it was. And um, they, I think, are going to be quite an interesting story to watch. Like England fans will remember Euro 2004 as well in qualifying when the two teams drew 2-2. So they sort of do have a little bit of a history of kind of stunning teams. And I just think they're worth mentioning because it will be a little side story in what I think is uh, two opening fixtures for them before they play Holland, where uh, they could get a point or more. You never know. And um, a lot of people in Italy will know their captain uh, as well, Goran Pandev, um, who uh, scored in uh, Tbilisi um, in, in a game, uh, I think, that was without fans. Um, but he sort of became a, a, a national icon. Um, and this was when they qualified for Euro 2020. Uh, but he spent a lot of his time at Inter Milan um, back in the sort of 2010s, uh, I would imagine, off the top of my head. So uh, they've got a bit of European experience. Uh, you know, they're complete underdogs. They're complete newcomers. Um, they're low ranked. But I just like the look of their draw. You know, Austria... Ukraine. I'm not frightened by either of those teams if I'm North Macedonia. I, I'm not going to be that person, but I've covered a fair bit of North Macedonia in the last five months or so. And I tell you, there isn't much about them, actually. That's uh, Everything goes through Pandev as the catalyst. And if you can smother Pandev, you shut down any attacking prowess that they've got. The The only other good outlet, I think, for them is um, the, the Napoli player, Elmas, who... 
I haven't yet seen perform in the last few months, albeit I didn't do the game against Georgia. But yeah, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't worry too much, Ben, about North Macedonia. Not not just at this point yet as a uh, as a dark horse to uh, to pin your tail onto. Uh, just quickly, let's go around the horn and uh, and give breakout player and a golden boot from each one of you, please. Let's uh, let's start with you, Steve. Uh, golden boot. Um, I think uh, Yilmaz of Turkey would be my surprise pick, but uh, it's purely. I think it'll be one of those Oleg Solanko or James Rodriguez type golden boots, where someone racks up a bunch of goals in the group against some weaker side, and that just carries them for the rest of the tournament. Um, I think the obvious names are obviously Lukaku, probably Memphis, and and Kane. They all have sort of easier groups and and are in good teams that will go pretty far. But Ilmaz will be my my surprise pick. And for a breakout player or sort of player of the tournament, I'm going to go for Ferran Torres of Spain. Um, Hasn't played as much as he probably wanted at Man City this year, but he's a really good player. And uh, I think he's got like um, six goals and nine appearances for Spain or something like that. So um, I think uh, he'll probably be my surprise breakout player, I guess, of the tournament. How about you, Ben? Oh, I was going to say, come to me last. Come right. to me last. Oh, no, no, I'll happily go. We'll go to the uh, the Scott instead. Let's go to Paul. Um, for top scorer for the for the European Championships in particular, it's usually quite a low total that wins it. Um, Griezmann got six in 2016, but if you look at 2012, Torres won it with three. Uh, David Villa won it with four in, in, in 2008. I know there's, there's more games now, but... Like I say, my expectations for excitement at this group stage is relatively low, so I'm expecting not a great deal of goals to get it. And Lewandowski hits the penalties and all the set pieces for Poland in, in a pretty average group against a reasonably average Spain team. He could conceivably score three in the group stages and win it. Um, at 20-1, to that to me seems, seems like value, considering how good a goal scorer that guy is and, and how many goals he scored this season. So I think I think there is, is value in that. Breakout stars is quite difficult. I, I think player of the tournament, I really do worry that it's going to be an England player. I really do. That keeps me <laughs> up at night. Um, Phil Foden, maybe. Someone like that. I do really worry that, that, that somebody really puts a stamp on this tournament from England. And yeah, it's, it might still be Kane. Yeah, I mean, he's um, he might be tired, but he's had a, except one of the, the best individual seasons that anybody in the Premier League's ever had. And I think that goes a, a little bit um, overlooked because Spurs' season was so bad that it, it kind of you, you forget how amazing his numbers in terms of goals and assists were. So it it could still be someone like Kane who comes and haunts my dreams forevermore. That actually actually is, the, is a big star of the tournament. <laughs> All right, Ben, how about you? Yeah, I think that Lewandowski. I think that Lewandowski, as was alluded to, is a good shout for the top scorer, and I think that. It's also worth watching Benzema. It depends how many games he obviously starts, but to the point that was just made about scoring in hatfuls, he's another one. Lukaku and Kane are obviously going to be the two favourites, but if I pick someone beyond the obvious, and I think the obvious is Kane, Lukaku, Ronaldo, Mbappe, then I start to kind of, in my mind, contemplate Lewandowski, Immobile and Benzema and Benzema would be my sort of shout. Uh, I don't think you're going to see like a Gnabry, a Werner, a Ferran Torres, uh, an Eden Hazard and so on um, weighing in. So my slightly long shot for the top scorer is going to be 
Benzema, and I will be interested to see how many games he starts. And then as far as breakout star, I suppose it just depends what we're constituting breakout star, because I look at a player that we discussed earlier, which is Jao Felix, who has been so hot and cold for Atleti, you know, disappointing in the Champions League, but uh, blistering at times in the league. And um, coming off the back of such a frustrating, um, in many ways, 1920, and then being part of a title-winning side in 2021, but being very hot and cold in big games, um, it's going to be interesting to see how he fares on uh, the big stage and where he's sort of utilised as well, because he can effectively drop deeper into attacking midfield or play as a centre-forward and um, I often feel that Simeone has utilised him in tactics that don't play to his strengths or out of position. So having got such a big price tag on him, uh, now is an opportunity to really set the world stage alight and show that he can be mentioned, say, in the same bracket as a Haaland or uh, an Mbappe. Uh, so he's one to kind of uh, look at, in my opinion. And then if I was sort of picking names that um, are a bit less known or not less known, but maybe um, less assumed that there'll be the star uh, breakout player of the season. I completely agree with what Paul said about Jaden Sancho. And if he plays enough minutes, I think that he will have uh, a breakout tournament. And I think England will, will have an incredible tournament, but it's hard to sort of say he's going to be a breakout player when I just don't think that he'll uh, play enough minutes. Uh, I like Sandro Tonali as well as a shout um, a more known player to certainly the uh, English audience be Kai Havertz, who again, um, you know, um, very sort of hit and miss has improved uh, in the latter half of the season. But how's he going to perform? Uh, we sort of have to wait and see. Uh, so Jao Felix would be the main one that I'm looking at um, beyond the sort of obvious um, and, you know, maybe Sancho and Tonali and uh, Havertz are going to be three other um, players that uh, some of them have broken through domestically, um, but not with the same consistency, as I say, as an Mbappe and a Haaland. But not many of those players have broken through at international level. So each of them has to try and now make a step up, a step up and they're certainly ones to watch. I would, I'd second, just to finish it on, on Benzema, um, I don't think there's any way that in his conversations with Didier Deschamps, he said to him, yeah, come to the tournament. You can sit on the bench for a few games and watch the football. Like, that's, yeah. not, that's not happened. The guy's, the, guy, the guy's not going to leave the comfort of his house for that. I think he's been told he's a guaranteed starter for the tournament. And that's why at a price of 16 to 1, to be leading the line for what we've all decided is easily the best team in the tournament is, uh, frankly, a, a very good price, I think, at the moment. So I, I would agree with, with, with Ben on that one. Um, just to drop one more name in, uh, uh, Chiesa of uh, Italy. Um, he's obviously had a good season at uh, Juve, but I was looking earlier and, and he doesn't play that much for Italy. He, he's sort of playing less games every year, despite improving every year at club level. So um, he might be the player that sort of turns around his international career this tournament uh, and go and becomes the, the main attacker, I guess, for for Italy because they, they kind of need someone to step up, I guess, and, and become that um, the, the attacker that's going to carry them over the next 10 years, I guess, because uh, a lot of their better play, a lot of their better attackers, like Immobile, are, are on the nearing 30 or on the wrong side of 30. So I think this might be a good tournament. Yeah.